it really feels like somebody made these decisions and didn't spend a single minute actually trying to use them, which is actually yes. the same problem I have <laughs> with most web UIs is decisions are made based on how it's going to look, not on how it's actually going to function. Jeff, I've got a question for you that's been rolling around in the back of my head for, oh, I don't know, the past 10 years, maybe. Oh, 10 years? Yeah. Oh. And So this is, this is just a recent thing, then? Yeah, just a recent thought <laughs> of mine. In my ponderings, I have wondered, why is it, or not just why, but what is the reason that designers are hell-bent on ruining everything? Is that all? Yeah. That's a very succinct thought. Yeah, that, that old Jeff. You just thought. rolled out of bed and all of a sudden, why are designers messing everything up? <laughs> all right. So I sent you a video a couple weeks ago um, right. from Haggerty, and they were doing a review. The, uh, the host, Jason, was doing a review on the new Mark 8 GTI. And he talks about all the good things, and then he gets into the bad, which is the entire UI UX inside the car. And I'll put a link in the show notes to the video and the timestamp where he goes to it. But to give it a rough kind of overview for the people who haven't seen the video yet, he goes on and he talks about how everything now is getting wrapped up into these infotainment systems. And the other thing is that buttons are being taken away, like dedicated buttons and switches are, are being eschewed in, oh, well, we can just put that in the infotainment system. Now, obviously, they're doing this because it's cheaper, because then you don't have a button. Right. Mm -hmm. And when there are buttons, they use those, like, capacitive-type buttons because they apparently look cool or whatever. They also last longer. The problem is there's no tactile sensation to them because it's just a flat piece of plastic. Right. So you run into a couple problems with this. One is the fact that because there's no real textural element to the switch or the button because there's, you know, eight of them on one little pad... Right. You don't know which one you're actually going to hit until you take your eyes off the road and look down at it, which, yeah, you know, actually. when you're driving, that's what you should never do. Your eyes should never come off the road to find yep. a button so you can hit it. But that's yes. that's what happens. And there's the other thing which he didn't comment, which I run into all the time if I'm in a vehicle with capacitive buttons is, well, that only works in climates where people don't have to wear gloves. <laughs> I had never thought of that before since because I rarely wear gloves. Let's hmm. say you're driving and you need to, I don't know, turn something on. Instead of just in a normal classic design car, you can just reach without taking your eyes off the road to the button. You can feel the button. You can turn it on and then you're good. Mm -hmm. but now you would have to, while you're driving, take your glove off, then take your eyes off the road, find the button, push the button, then bring your eyes back up to the road. And then because it's cold, now you need to put your glove back on. Yes, yes, that's and true. Why? Be because some yokel head decided that having a dedicated button for a thing was a bad idea. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I don't want to wreck the rant because I'm really enjoying it, but I do need to say that the modern gloves, a lot of them have in the fingertips this little capacitive or, or passes-through strip so that you can interact with such things. Okay. And it's not high precision, but it is possible. I, I would... I would argue a lot of yes okay. there are gloves like that is it more than 50 percent of gloves in the world today have capacitive strips in them i'm not qualified to answer that question or even consider it well then how, I, how would how would i know well then i don't think you should say a lot there well, are some yes but you have to specifically go out and buy those if you go to, we need to talk about the definition of a lot now no but if, if you go if you go to walmart if you go to you know kohl's if you go to target if you go to macy's and you just go and grab a pair of gloves it's not going to be a large amount Many things, much. Yeah, I don't think does that's... not imply a percentage. Okay. It does not imply anything like that. I still... There's a lot of gloves that have it. I don't think there are a lot of gloves. I think if okay. you went to the, the local store near you and you did a survey of all the gloves that they sell and how many of them actually had little capacitive things you're talking about, I think you would find that the ones with are a f like a super fractional minority of all the I'm gloves. Detecting made. also, it's a locality difference too. 
it actually gets cold where you are. It infrequently gets cold where I am. So the gloves they sell here are usually light gloves. And those are trivial to put the little capacitive strips into. But uh, where you're from, gloves are actually needed. Right. And the so, quality of your gloves is important, so I would expect it to be much lower incidence of, oh, this has a capacitive strip in it. I, I would actually think the opposite, because gloves are more common here, that it would become a more common issue that you would need to interact with a device that needs the capacitive touch, because you're wearing gloves more. Hmm. That's plausible. Either way. Either way, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to make sure that that was in there. Now, having completely derailed your ramp, please resume. Yeah. Because I was really enjoying it. So, there's a whole bunch of things that are being done in car UIs and UX that it really feels like somebody made these decisions and didn't spend a single minute actually trying to use them, which is actually yes. the same problem I have <laughs> with most web UIs, is decisions are made based on how it's going to look, not on how it's actually going to function. I, ran I would also add into that uh, decisions are made based upon what's easy for them to make. All right. Okay. I think that's so, a big component too. I, I, I hear you. I completely disagree because okay. retooling your factory to make new stuff and then hiring UI and coders to then write the code for all of it is not cheaper than what you already have in place. You already have the entire factory fabs ready and capable of doing this. You're having to retool your entire assembly line for interior bits. Plus, you, you now have yeah, the okay. added coded effort to actually then implement this. And of course, then you're going to have to update it. And then you're going to have to maintain those developers to continually refine over time as problems yeah. come out. Whereas okay, a, button, I will say that, a button is on or off. Once it's that's, made... That's exactly the problem. It's, 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 it's not a sunk cost. Every generation of a vehicle has usually got some change in interior styling. And that means different uh, fabs, different plastic... Molds, plastic, whatever, different, whatever. When you have a screen, all you're doing when you're redoing the interior is moving buttons around on the screen. So at that point, once you shift to using an infotainment panel, like say a big 19-inch job right in the middle of the center console, you no longer have to worry about, do I have to fab out some other different thing for these different models of cars? They're all using the same screen in the middle. That saves a tremendous amount of money in engineering They're time. not using the same screen. They're changing it every freaking refresh of the car because the interior needs to be different. Okay, well. So the center I console... I think the old code copies over, though. Well, no, because largely. where the button goes on the screen is going to change based on the screen framing because those things are specifically designed for the actual size of the screen because right. of where they position things. It's not like there's a standard 16 by 9 screen in every car. The shape... No, no, I get what you're saying. But I, I think it's... You're ignoring the utility of no longer having to change hardware manufacturing processes. Is my screen larger or smaller? Right. Is no, a lot easier to deal with though? I hear what you're saying. But when you're okay. making literal millions of buttons, tens of millions of buttons, 30, however many buttons for a car, when it's a physical switch, the cost for those switches is going to be next to nothing because of the scale you're doing them at. And you're going to use that same switch across your entire range of vehicles or a large portion of your range of vehicles. I would expect so, yeah. Whereas that cost is, yes, you pay for the retooling once and then for the life of that switch, you're not retooling anymore. So you're just cranking those things out, which is an automated factory, which is doing it. You don't have human cost involved in doing that other than, right. you know, people on the assembly floor doing the, you know, checking on stuff. But yet when you're changing it in code every refresh and sometimes refresh updates within a, 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 a refresh cycle you're running into the fact that you have developers which are constantly getting paid all the time for that job so that i don't i don't think there's a savings of cost the pro other problem which i think is the bigger problem is that it totally screws with the actual people who are using the car because it's not just like oh they're changing things it's that they're actively making it worse like let me give you an example so in my, okay. in my car, you've been in my car before, there's pretty much a dedicated button for everything. I can right. get in, turn on the front defroster, the rear defroster, change both of the climate control settings for both sides of the car, uh, turn the volume down, change track. I can do all of stuff from individual buttons in the center console and on the steering wheel. And I can do all of that in probably under three seconds. Yeah. Because well, okay. it, they're all right there. So like okay, turning yeah. the knob for the temperature takes a fraction of a second. And then I'm moving my hand six inches to the right to then turn the other one. Yeah, Whereas okay, if you look at like a modern infotainment system, not only do you have to hit the button to go into the climate control, but you have to sit there and wait 
the one second for the yeah. stupid animation that they have to load every time. I hate. And then you that. have to tap, 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 tap to actually increase the temperature. Oh, but then you have to do the other side. So now you're sitting there, tap, 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 tap to do the the secondary climate controls. Or, or, or if there's a slider, you have to very precisely put your finger right on the slider and drag it up or down. Again, very precisely to get it where you want. And it's a lot more difficult to do that than just rotating a wheel with clicking. And sometimes you have to like scroll multiple times because one swipe up only changes the temperature by like two degrees. So you have to keep yeah. doing it for large swings. Now, if you're getting in your car at six o'clock in the morning and the last time you drove it was say five o'clock in the afternoon, evening, the day before, well, you might've had the AC on and now you want to turn the heater on. Well, you start your car up. Now you got to do all this while it's trying to blow cold air on you in the morning. Mm -hmm. yep. And then, okay, you finally get the temperature climate control. So now you want to do something with the music. Now you got to back out of that menu to then get into the navigate or the audio entertainment, whatever, to then get to the stuff where you can then turn the volume down and you have the same problem with the volume knobs. It's like people did not think about how this actually, people are going to use it in the real world. And the worst, the worst of all with this is Tesla. Tesla. Yep. Have you seen, have you seen their air vent crap? No. So, okay. In my car, in pretty much any car in the world, almost, if you want to change the direction of the vents, you reach your hand up, you touch the vent and you move a knob or you change the position of the, of the vent thing. It's really simple. You can't do that they in a Tesla. You what? have to go into the infotainment system, then oh, you have gosh. to go into climate control, and then you have to click on the screen and drag your finger around the screen to change the direction of where the air is coming out of the vent. Oh, gosh, that's a horrible gimmick. And again, you have to take your eyes off the road to do this because you have to hit your finger on the right spot of the screen and then look on the screen to see where the little visual elements are telling you that the air is getting directed to. Plus, okay, instead of you moving it yourself, now there's little motors to move it or something, servos, and all those have to be maintained and they break. Whereas, I understand that for decades, car manufacturers have made these air vents pretty cheap. I mean, you complained bitterly about the Corrado air vents never surviving. Well, it wasn't and that the vent didn't survive. It was that there was a plastic slider. strip. There was a plastic strip yeah. that held all the, the little flaps together. And it would degrade right. over time. Now, okay, this is right. not a problem because I have a 3D printer. I just printed exactly. a new thing to do, replace that with. But it was just demonstrative of the point. Right. So but those things went, lasted 30 years. There. So it's not right. really an issue for them to degrade over 30 years. I think servos and, and Tesla air vents are not going to last 30 years without some serious luck, frankly. They're going to wear out. Well, I don't know if you don't move them a lot, but it's, it's the more parts you have to make a thing do, the higher likelihood that one of them is going to break and the higher the cost goes when it does break. So, like the, like the vehicles that have the running boards that move on and out, you know, that I just, I remember eyeballing those and going, oh, that's going to break. You know, why don't you just get a fixed set? So, it's the same kind of thinking. I had no idea that you actually had to use the interface. Yes. I, I never sat in a Tesla, I never interacted with it, I never even looked at videos of them, I don't know anything about them. I mean, I, I admire what they're capable of doing from afar, and I had one like do his ludicrous speed off of the line to get in front of me one time, which is both maddening and pretty awesome. Um, anyway, I didn't know it was that bad. That would be horrible. Yes. Actually. Like Tesla's, uh, they look pretty decent as far as how they drive from, from what I've heard and what I've experienced. They, they drive well, but it seems like a lot of it, at least as far as the user experience is based on being this kind of new and edgy and we're going to change the paradigm. We're going to be disruptive in how this is done. And I just want to punch babies when people talk about that because well, it's no, so no, not infuriating. Babies. Not babies. Not babies. Babies that grow up to be designers. Those are the ones. Not regular babies. Ooh, ooh. Babies that grow um, up to be designers. Now, I'm really conflicted now. Let me think about that. Anyway. You know what the yeah. Spartans did, man? I'm not going that far. I'm just trying to okay. toughen them up a little so they don't make bad decisions. Okay, 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 all right, all right. So I still can't get on board with baby torment of any kind. It's just not my thing. But you do you. It's also and don't tell me don't tell me about it because I don't want to be involved when you get picked up by the police. Yeah, it, it's also a joke, which you would know I that understand. if you were a human. You found me out. How dare you expose oh, right. me to the rest we of the world? Oh, right. We had we had an agreement. I wasn't going to tell people that. Yes, my roboticism. Oh. Well, that was just a joke too, people. Ha ha ha. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving uh, along. Right, so I looked up a video on these Tesla Model 3 air vents, and this 
In this video I found on YouTube, anytime you move the air direction in the touchscreen, carefully calculated ratios of air pressure and special fluid dynamics are in play between two intersecting vents. Here's how it works. Gag me. Yeah. Because Ugh. a flap that you turn with your fingers was too complex or too difficult S for people to do. Special fluid dynamics. Special. Ooh. Yeah, you know what? Special fluid dynamics was happening when I changed an air vent, too. It just didn't mm -hmm. be calculated because it just naturally happened. Right. But, okay, I have been ranting on cars, and, and right? I think they're a good encapsulation of this stupid tech design idea concept bullcrap coming into the regular world outside of, like, computer and web UI and right. ruining things. But here's the thing. <laughs> It, if, if I take a step, if I take a step back, Jeff, mm -hmm. it's even broader than that. Mm -hmm. It is. Like, here's another example. Suits. Like wearing a suit, like what you go to the nice restaurant in? Yeah, like you, you go to a, a nice, you know, suit that you put on because you want to look nice. You're going on a mm -hmm. date. Or you're going for a job interview or something. Suits. Now, classic men's suits. We, we, there's like this understanding of what actually looks good in a suit on a man. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of this classic style which fits pretty much every body type. If you're a skinny guy or you're a big guy, there's kind of like this classic design that looks good on everyone. Mm -hmm. But yet if you go to the suit store, that's not what you're going to get. You're going to get the, the latest kind of fad over the last five, 10 years that's the new style, right. which really only looks good on a certain body type. And if you're not in that body type, well, then it's not going to look good on you. Mm -hmm. And of course, in, in, in a couple of years, it's going to change again to something else other than the classic design, which actually looks good. It's, this just doesn't happen in menswear. This, of course, happens in, in womenswear as well. You know, if you take women's dresses, if, if you look back at, say, the last 150 years, there are clearly certain design elements in a dress that work mm -hmm. and others that are definitely just kind of a fad. Mm -hmm. But instead of kind of honing in on the things that definitely work designers just keep going on all these weird ideas and it's like there's an understanding of like what is the perfect mean and instead of actually going for that and you know shifting slightly they're always like around swirling around this mean trying to do all this other stuff okay and yeah. you end up with you end up with fads the problem is those fads look horrible in five ten years Doug, you can't blanket you know, you say take, that that's not how it works. I think, I think, no, I think in general you can. For instance, if you take, say, uh, I don't know, classic, like, women's sundress from, like, the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, okay? If a modern woman went and put that on today, everyone would think she would look perfectly fine. No one would look at that and go, oh, that's so horrible. If you go get one of these crazy dresses from the 80s and put it on a woman today... And she went out to wear that. People are going to be like, what on earth is that? I'm trying you know, to picture an 80s dress and nothing's really coming to mind as like distinguishable. What? All right, let's see what Google does. 80s dress. Lots of pink for some reason. Like hot pink. Lots of pinks. Lots of big poofy things. Mm -hmm. like, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, just the perm era. Okay, yeah, I get what you're saying now. Yeah. But like, you know, again, take that 1950s dress. If a woman took a picture of that and put it on Instagram. Like she'd get likes. People would think it looks good. Mm -hmm. And then five years, 10 years from now, People wouldn't look back at that picture and go, oh, wow, what on earth were you thinking? Whereas in a lot of the other things, the fads, for example, we look back at them, you know, 10 years after and go, oh, wow, that was uh, why did we think that was good? Like, for instance, what are they, Jenko jeans that guys wore? The Those big, are coming back. Like, no, they shouldn't. But you get They're what I'm saying. They're quite useful if you play hacky sack or if you're trying to hide multiple puppies in your pants legs or something right because because that's what everybody did in the 90s was hide puppies in their pants well maybe not puppies but other things and oh god speaking of the 90s go back and look at men's suits in the 90s they were enormous but like the parachute pants like, kind of thing just like really wide and and kind of huge shoulders yeah and the sports jacket themselves were super wide mm -hmm. like, it was just like what what is going on here why is this why is this the thing because again it was let's get caught up in this fad instead of what we have literally a century worth of evidence on that actually works and is good and looks good and is timeless. And a lot of companies try to use that timeless word like, oh, our new designs are timeless. Well, then why is it in five years they're no longer making that design anymore? They're making a new design. 
well, it wasn't very timeless if you had to change I don't it. think of, well, first of all, I don't really go shopping for women's clothing nearly as much as you do, and I don't have the encyclopedic knowledge of women's clothing the way you do, so I have to defer to your knowledge there, but I don't really think of dresses as timeless. I think more like jewelry. Certain jewelry sets or pieces or approaches, those would be timeless. And, and diamonds, technically by definition, are, are kind of timeless, because good luck breaking them. So, I guess I'm going to quibble with this word timeless. I'm not disagreeing with a lot of the points you're making, but I don't, I don't care for that word for some reason. Okay, let's, let's be clear. I'm not the one using the word timeless. Right. I, so I just... You're actually in agreement with me that the use of the word timeless by designers is wrong. I kept using the word classic design. Okay, okay. So I... Which... Go ahead. I've, I've been thinking the whole time about some of the words you're saying, and I, I agree with the, the rant on designers and, and a lot of what you're saying, but I also keep getting a sense of you're advocating for only vanilla ice cream because vanilla no, is still I'm the actually, test of time and maybe chocolate is, is an offsetting something. Not this no. Ben and Jerry, hundreds of flavors. That's, that's not what I'm saying that's, at all. That's a very clear analogy to me. Um, and I, I believe I said, you know, there's the mean and you can shift around inside that mean and change small things to be unique. Mm -hmm. But when you're throwing the mean out, like let's, let's take a suit, okay? There's tons of different features on a suit. How the cut and the chest is, how the cut at the waist is, how the shoulders are, the sleeve length, how baggy are the sleeves, how tight is the suit on the, the you know, pants on the suit, blah, 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 on the, the pants, how tight are they? Are the ankle or the seams at the bottom or the legs cuffed? There's all these things. Are there pleats? There's all these different things that can be done and tweaked slightly to bring a garment and make it unique. Mm -hmm. And you can still have, let's just, I'm going to throw out random numbers here. If you were to take all of the classic, in air quotes, design features, and you were to make one, and then you were to say, okay, we're going to take 20% of these and tweak them just a little, then you would end up with something that is very classic, but yet also stands apart and is unique and has its own individual look to it. Yes. Right. Okay. But you're still sticking with the bulk of what we know looks good and what we know is, I'm not going to use the word timeless, mm -hmm. but gives that classic look and just looks good. I, so I think you can have a lot of changes without going overboard. It's, I would bring this back to the less is more. You can make changes, but when you're throwing, when you're changing the majority of things away from an understood mean, I think that's where you start to end up in problem territory. So I think it's a problem. Part of your argument also, I get the sense, is you're arguing from a this is what's normal and accepted and anything that's outside of that, if you go past the 20% changes of the details or something, I don't know, since you've settled on a number, I'm going to use it as a, as a reference. Okay. If 20% uh, within 20% is like acceptably unique, right? Maybe 20 to 40% is, okay, that could be getting a little zany and anything, anything above 40% is like, okay, now, dude, you're off-roading and we don't care for it. And then there's those ones that are like 90% different. Right, so I just made a range up here, but it seems like to me you're assuming that everybody understands what those features generally are, or they would know it when they see it, such that when they see something that is not within the 20% equivalence class, they'd be like, that's too weird, I can't get that. And I don't think that that's accurate at all. Okay, I'm talking about designers. Designers are going to have an understanding of, of some of this, of what works and what has been done before. If they're good. The common person won't, but the designer should. And if the designer doesn't, they need to be beaten with a wiffle ball bat. The designer is making products for, yes. Uh, okay, sorry, I got a wiffle bat. Interesting. Yeah, the little plastic ones that, like, kids play with. Yeah, interesting mental imagery. Um, so the designers are making stuff, and they're not making it in a vacuum, unless it's artistic. Like, if it's a purely artistic endeavor, then, okay, it's art. And you can make art that's also functional, but a lot of times designers are making products or making designs to be used by the masses. Are they? Yeah. Because I can't tell. Because they keep ruining the functionality of the thing. Ostensibly they are. For... Well, no, they are. When, when you, the UX for something like a, the car designs I was talking about, when the UX is demonstrably worse, you can't go, oh, well, maybe it's worse. No, it, it is. Honda, for instance, and they actually talk, Jason talks about it in his video, got crucified on the fact that they took away the actual volume control knob and they had one of those dumb slide things. And then Honda basically afterwards went, oh yeah, that was a big mistake. And they put the classic knob back mm. in because they realized this is what people know. This is what people expect. And we went and tried to change what people know and 
we thought it was going to be great. And they obviously didn't check with anybody because had they checked with everybody, they'd have got a lot of feedback of, no, 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 this is not a good mm -hmm. idea. So when I'm talking about designers, I'm talking about people that understand or should, again, understand what has come before, what works and what doesn't. And I'm not saying you can't go outside the bounds and try something crazy because clearly I think you can. That's what a lot of open source software does. We try crazy random things and a lot of the times it doesn't work, but sometimes we've land on something that's really great. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the big thing is you try the wacky things. I don't want to say in isolation, but you try them in limited amounts. Okay. So for instance, uh, the Corrado is a perfect example of this mm -hmm. of how I think Volkswagen did it right. Within the Corrado circles, it's known as the greatest collection of bad ideas that Volkswagen ever had. Because they tried a whole bunch of things with that car. Mm -hmm. And a whole bunch of them didn't really work out too well. It was the test some of for them, a lot of other cars, though, wasn't it? Some of them, not, not so much. Okay. Some of them worked out. Some of them were really cool, but they just didn't continue them because it wasn't what a lot of people wanted or it wasn't what people expected or so on and so forth. But the thing was, they did all of this kind of proof of concept stuff and ideas in one car. Mm -hmm. And they got their testing in that. They didn't go, hey, let's take this kooky idea of ours and apply it across every single car that we sell, and then we're just going to see what happens. Mm -hmm. Because that is done when you have an, a pre... What's the word I'm looking for? When you basically have an expectation ahead of time yeah. that this is absolutely going to be better. And you're not even going to check to see if maybe you're wrong. It's just, this is the way forward. And then you do something. Instead of, let's try this see if it works, and then if it does, okay, now let's run with it. I see a lot of parallels here, and I really don't want to drag it to the political realm, so I'm just going to mention it in passing. This, this sounds a lot like a discussion we've had earlier about the Overton window, and designers... Uh, Overton window is about political discourse, but if we apply the same concept to... Well, let me just... Actually, I don't think the Overton window is about political discourse. It's about discourse in general. Okay. You can have an Overton window in a whole bunch of different things. It's just, you know, the shifting of what is acceptable to talk mm -hmm. about within that topic. So the, I guess maybe uh, 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 there's more models. Uh, I don't know if you heard of Halen's spheres. Similar idea. Instead of a window, it's, it's like spheres of, they call it spheres of consensus, sphere of controversy, and sphere of deviance. And it seems like the designers that you're discussing are going way outside of the sphere of consensus and sometimes even past sphere of controversy into the sphere of deviance. And expecting everybody to join them there and saying, this is the right way. This is the better way forward. It, it reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, progressive politicians and progressive movement members. And they're deliberately trying to push society for you, forward in their chosen pet ways. And so they'll just start declaring, this is, the, this is the thing we need to be doing. And by doing so, they hope to move the Overton window and enter it into political discourse and make it such that society becomes more accepting of the thing that they're declaring. And it feels like a, there's a strong analogy here between that and what designers will do when they decide this is the right way to do things. We're going to take away all the buttons inside your car. We're going to take away all the features on your web interface so we can accommodate what mobile needs, right? We were discussed, I think, five or six episodes ago about the, the same interface used on the two different mediums and on a computer, there's massive space left over. I think it's a similar thing there. They're, they're, they're putting a line in the sand and saying, all right, everybody belongs on this line when a lot of people were on the other line and they weren't even aware that there is a line and they don't honestly care. A lot of people don't. So those that do care and are making an effort to move things in a certain direction make these decisions and kind of enforce them, I guess maybe is a better way to put it. I think what frustrates me the most is that Things, decisions are being made that, at least from the outside, appear to be completely arbitrary and not actually proven. Because, like, I'm all for, if somebody thinks they've got a better way to do something, like, great, spin up something, demo it, get feedback, like, like show me that this is actually better. I am willing to have my mind changed. Right. Yeah. If there is some way to do something better, say... We'll use the car analogy for if there's some way better to have interfacing with you know while i'm driving a car to be able to control it like bring it on i want the better thing mm -hmm. but then kind of contingent on that like like, like uh, the buttons on your steering wheel is an excellent evolution in my opinion because now it means yeah. you don't have to look away you got 
the most important buttons are right there where your thumbs are supposed to be. That was an excellent mm -hmm. evolution that some designers said, we should do this. And probably some bean counter pushback, oh, this is going to make our steering wheel a heck of a lot harder to, to make and more expensive and yada, yada, yada. But it was totally worth it. Yeah, and if you look at that for an example, that did not come out on every car across a range. It was, it was tried on a car or a few cars, and they just waited to see what happened. Mm -hmm. They waited to see what the feedback was. And then once it was clear that, yes, this is something that is actually really good and really useful in the real world, not just in some designer's head or in some meeting where executives are like, ooh, I like this. Once they actually realized that this was actually a positive thing, then they rolled it out to everybody. Okay. Then it got applied to all the cars. It wasn't just, okay, the entire range is getting this new feature because we just decided to, and we're not actually going to test if this is any good. Yeah. I think for me, that's mm. where the, the issue comes in is decisions are being made without actually being proven that those decisions are the right thing. Okay. If you, if you decides, prove that something is the right thing. Who decides if it's the right thing? Let me ask that. Okay. Well, if you are a company who is trying to sell a $50,000 vehicle to somebody, I think that a lot of it comes down to the people who are going to be using that $50,000 vehicle or whatever. I'm using 50 as an average mm -hmm. between, you know, say 20 and 80. Right. P the people who are going to be using that, you're building it for them. So they should be the ones, in my opinion, who kind of are leading the yes, this is good and yes, this is bad. Or no, this is bad. Because they're the ones that are actually using it every day in and out. Mm -hmm. You know, a designer... Well, they might own the car or they might not. They might have another car that they own. Like, it's not like if you work for Volkswagen, for example, that you're only allowed to own a Volkswagen. Right. So I mean, you're probably strongly may... incentivized to do so with discounts and such, and, and they want you to represent. You work for Volkswagen, yeah, you should drive but... a Volkswagen, but we're not going to demand you do it. Right. But at the same time, they might be so tired of dealing with Volkswagens because that's their day job that they don't want to. Yeah, I can you know, see People that, that work in a restaurant never want to eat in that restaurant yep. because... They spend so much time. They want to eat another restaurant. Mm -hmm. And they know so, where all the bodies are buried in the back. Right. So like in that case, you have people who are designing something that then aren't even potentially using it mm -hmm. to then experience the problems that they're introducing because they don't, they are not getting the day in day out use of the thing they've designed. Now in the software world, we call this dog fooding, you know, eat your own dog food. Mm -hmm. If you're writing software, use it because you will find all the pain points in your software as you use it instead of pushing something out the door and then, Oh, well the users will complain if they don't like it, or I don't care if the users complain. This is what I've decided. To me, this seems to primarily exist in the design world because a lot of the other areas that are not specifically design focused actually, at least from what I've seen, do market analysis on things. So I'm really uncomfortable with, I'm having trouble articulating this. I'm uncomfortable with ascribing to all designers the patterns of some ones that stick out, right? And... Okay, don't give me the hashtag not all fallacy. Clearly, I do not mean 100% of designers are like this. No, I don't, but you're speaking in aggregate, and earlier you were talking about they make you, uh, designers in aggregate, make you want to punch babies, right? That's how you yes. opened this monologue, or I guess it's not a monologue, this diatribe with all designers. So it just seems to me like you're castigating an entire job culture or something, career choice, whatever, based upon the impacts that some small percentage of them has you know, had an outsized impact on ruining your experiences or something. I don't think it's small. Okay. Because hmm. it goes across so many industries mm -hmm. that it, it's not just, you know, for instance, it's not just web UI designers. Mm -hmm. That's, that's because true. Because you, you can see the same tendencies and the same decisions and the same kind of methodical processes of, of the development of a UI. You see the same things being reflected across multiple domains that are completely unrelated. You know, Fashion designers are not looking at web UIs for inspiration on how to design stuff. <laughs> Just imagine. All right, our dress is going to have rounded corners now. 
Exactly. <laughs> Rounded corners are old. We did that last year. We're going to do, you know, angles now. I, like, need, no. I need a drop shadow on this dress right now. Right. And, so I, that's what I don't get is it. I get that it, design is inherently a creative aspect. And that as a result, you're going to have a lot of hits and a lot of misses. Mm -hmm. It seems, though, that recently we're getting a lot more misses than hits because it seems that generally there's this concept of upending what has gone before that we have slowly and incrementally been developing towards a design mean over the last several hundred years of societal development. So I think I want to lay that at the feet of a less uh, lowered attention span of pretty much any of the consumers. There's so many more things competing. Think back 30 years. How many fast food chains were there in your area 30 years ago? How many are there now? Well, you don't count because you live in the middle of nowhere. But um, the fast food chains are not, not a good example. Um, there's a lot more choices of how to spend your time and attention out there. And for someone who is trying to sell you a product, your opportunity to catch someone's attention is much less. And so one of the things you can do instead is to make your product flashy or notable in some way, especially in a way that creates some viral buzz or, or some kind of something and you get the influencers to review your product and, oh, they'll just go Google, you know, crazy over this feature that now if you, if you twiddle your left hand in a certain way, now the, the vents automatically flip on top of each other. So, I don't know, it doesn't make any sense, but you get what I'm saying. Some, some ridiculous design feature that people that, that distinguish the product. And I think it kind of, some of this can be laid at the feet of, you have to do things in your product to catch the attention quickly because you don't have long. And I hate okay. that. So I, I, I hear what you're saying and I, I do agree with you. However, I think this is, this is not a problem, I don't feel, with capturing the attention of the consumer. Mm -hmm. I think this is a problem of companies deciding that short-term gains are more important than long-term gains because brand loyalty used to be a thing companies understood and they would go for because they realized, look, if we put a lot of effort and, and intent into this and we make a quality product, we're not just going to get a quick sale. It might take us a while to build up, you know, people being interested, but if we continue and make a solid product and support it, we are going to have that consumer buying our products for decades. Like like Coke or Pepsi or, or any of the beer companies or this is, you know, how do you sell Coke to people that already understand Coke and it's part of their lives? How do you convince them to drink more Coke instead of water or instead of Pepsi or instead of whatever? Because the product doesn't change. They, they tried to make a change one time and that went so horribly they backed it out. So yeah, they also went from real sugar to not somewhere in there and that wasn't we didn't get a choice on that. But I guess uh, it seems like these brands, they understand brand loyalty and they've been banking on it for decades. But other brands have decided it's not worth it to try and build that brand loyalty. I still think that that somewhat goes back to the attention span. How, so you, if you watch like a sporting event, there's going to be tons of beer commercials. There's probably going to be several Coke commercials and several Pepsi commercials also. Just what are they selling? Reminder that they exist and they haven't changed. It's, so I think I, I think there's a difference between things that are consumable and things that are not. Okay. Because when you buy a Coke, you've used the product in a minute or however long it takes you to drink the Coke. And then it's done. That is completely different from a car you're going to buy and use for a decade. Well, BMW advertises in a similar fashion. Right? They, they do talk about some of the features of their cars, but they, they, their thesis for most of their advertisements for a decade, two years, two, 20 years. The ultimate driving machine. Doesn't matter which model you have. This is the ultimate driving machine for the for the purpose which you need it to be. Whether or not that's true, but they're they're advertising BMW, the ultimate driving machine. So there's not just an experience thing that's over quickly. This is a you're choosing to buy a BMW because you understand the experience you get and it's what you want, and you agree that it's the ultimate experience for you, or something. So there's it's not just consumables. Right, but I see it in a lot of these right, old story companies. I, I think that actually supports what I'm saying okay. in that 
you know, something that is a consumable like Coke has a completely different marketing angle than something that you are going to buy and use over and over and over and over again. I agree. So Coke, you know, their thing is to get you to, yes, continue to buy their products, but you're going to be buying them the next day, not we want to build you as a Coke consumer for the next 40 years. Now, obviously they would like that, mm -hmm. but they would. what you do to sustain a customer for a week, let's say, versus what you're going to do to sustain a customer for a decade is going to be different. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, and to, to pull back, there's another aspect of this, which I thought of about a, uh, about a month ago, I guess. I, I, I happened upon a random picture, and I don't know where it's from, uh, of two buildings next to each other in a city. Mm -hmm. And I will put the uh, photo in the show notes. I'm going to send this to you because this is a... All right. This brings up another aspect of design that is kind of baffling to me, and I think maybe you might have an idea. Hmm. So That's kind of pretty. For people, that are for people that are just, you know, they haven't actually open the link in the show notes to see this. It's, uh, you know, in a city, the small buildings that are right next to each other, row buildings, one of them is, the storefront is very ornate. It's sort of the kind of Georgian style, you know, storefront. It's very intricate. It's very unique. Um, I, I don't really know how else to describe it other than ornate. Baroque, maybe. And then you look at, at the one right next to it, and it's still an old building, but you can see where all the stuff has been modernized mm -hmm. and it's just flat and boring and unremarked and bland. Mm -hmm. And I will also put a link in the show notes for a gallery of someone that did actually kind of a comparison of old and new architecture that happens to be in the same image or that happens to actually be on the same building, which is, is a weird one. But the reason I bring this up is because if, if we look at the, the ornate shop front, I got to thinking of, you know, to do that these days would be oddly extraordinarily expensive. But here's the odd thing. That was even more expensive back in the day. Like you think back in that time to do a storefront like that would have cost multiple craftsmen probably months to a year to do all of that intricate woodwork to then have the storefront be like that. Mm -hmm. Now you could crank this kind of stuff out, automating tools very quickly. Like in my, in my living room, I have, it's a, it's that shelving unit, Brown shelving unit that I have like the record player and some of the old TVs on. Mm -hmm. Now that was handmade back in like, I don't know, probably the sixties, maybe it's, it's not very complex, but it was handmade. And you can tell it was handmade because if you actually go up and look at where the cuts are, you see that well, the cuts aren't all perfect. They're not all perfectly parallel. There's, you know, deviation uh -huh. there. And that if, if somebody back in the 60s, obviously that was mass produced. But if somebody was to hand make that, they could have. It would have taken them probably a week to, man to make that one thing, one person. If they had the skills. If they had the skills. Whereas with, with lathes now and CNC machines and routers, somebody today could probably make that whole thing in, in a couple hours. There's the startup and, cost of setting up the programming or whatever, or, or you know, building the, like when you're using a lathe, you get this lathe copying things. You build the one that you actually want, and then it becomes the model for the next thing you want. Kind of like how they carve keys out in the, in the mm -hmm. big box stores. Yeah. So, but th there is startup time there, but we, you know, you there's, yeah, there's definite startup time, but there's not, let me get out the wood chisel and do this by hand. Right. So I don't think the startup time is even relevant when you're talking about, well, yeah, I've got startup time on this and then I'm going to be able to produce it in three hours versus this is going to take me a whole week. Uh -huh. Um, and I find that interesting that in a day and age where we have manufacturing capabilities that make intricate ornate stuff super easy we have that at our disposal all designs are bland and mostly flat well let me ask you something all right so this picture you showed me with the two buildings side by side the first one let's say both of these companies in those spaces are selling the exact same thing 
Mm-hmm. Which store are you going to go in first? I would probably go in the Loeb Meyer store. The, the, older. the ornate one. Yeah. Okay. What would your expectation be of the product quality and price relative to the one in the shop next door? So for me, again, under the assumption and the knowledge that they both sell the same thing, mm-hmm. I'm going to go into the more ornate, intricate one because I'm going to have the kind of the prejudgment that they care so much about their, you know, external ex- uh, um, appearance that they're going to put the same quality and intention into the things that they're selling. Exactly. It's signaling. That's what this is. These two buildings side by side are signaling to different crowds, and they mean different things. When I look at the two storefronts, I think, uh, I don't know how much the thing is going to be, but I would expect in the the ornate building it's going to be more expensive. But I also expect there's going to be a salesman that'll help me figure it out. What's the right thing? And my experience will be vastly superior. It may be worth the cost. It may not be. Just let's say they're two shoe stores or something. I would expect the the ornate store to have much more service than the one that's flat fronted and boring, because it seems like the flat fronted and boring one is is more about keeping the cost down, whereas the ornate one is clearly more about an experience. And the, the storefront is beautifully maintained. It's, it looks like it's very old, but it's in great shape. So clearly it's not just well-built to begin with. It's been well-cared for. And that's indicative to me of uh, that, that bodes well for the product that they are selling. The actual date that they have in the woodwork says 1823. So. Well, that's 200 years ago almost. Yeah, we're coming up. It'll be 200 years next year. So that, yeah. that woodwork and it's... Wow, it's gorgeous. It's probably been now restored that, some. Yeah, it, it, I would assume that it has been in restored. In the internal because... combustion era, all those things were pitting a lot of the building fronts and they had to be restored yeah. over time. So that's a restored, but still, someone took the effort to restore mm-hmm. it and they did not erase its uniqueness. In fact, they, they probably enhanced it. You know, it was, it was expensive to do. And you, to your point earlier about it, it was expensive to do back then and it may be cheaper to do now. If it's about signaling, which is what a lot of this seems to be, then okay. unless you're building a chain, there's not much point to you using off-the-shelf ornate components, for lack of a better way to put it. If, if is this theory... See, I, I would agree think the opposite. Okay. If you aren't a chain, that helps you distinguish yourself more than the generic chain where they all look exactly the same. Well, okay, then you're unique in the exact same way as the other stores, I think. So you're saying that someone, an individual store that decides to do something ornate like this is going to look exactly the same as another store which has 50 buildings that look all exactly, those 50 all look the same. No, okay, so what I'm trying to get at is if you, you, you made the, the, you proposed earlier, or you stated the hypothesis that a lot of these ornate features now could be made a lot more easily because of modern machinery and, and automation and such. So you're not going to be able to get just any ornate feature. So let's just let's, let's zoom in on just one of these features. You get these statues on either side of the window on the second floor. And you got these columns kind of against the wall highlighting the statue. Okay. The one on the inside near the window frame has these ornate scrolls on them. The one on the outside doesn't, but they both have this gilding on it and yada, 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 all these little features, right? Very pretty. Well... I would have to guess that the company that you're buying this storefront from, like you're just going to go to the storefront store in this fantasy, and you're looking for unique features to put on your storefront. Well, there's going to be a limited amount of features that are unique that you can put in your storefront because they're having to automate things and they've got to maintain supply. And in general, companies are trying to reduce their work in progress and reduce their catalog size. So if you have 50 companies all building storefronts in the same area using the same supplier, I would have to guess that you're going to see a lot of identical or very similar ornate cues or ornate okay. additions. That's where so I'm getting at. I, I, I hear you, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say no, and here's why. If you, if you look back uh, in my town, obviously there's a lot of Victorian homes because a lot of them were built in the Victorian times. They're all very unique in and of themselves because, for instance, let's talk about that column. We'll, we'll specifically focus on the one on the left-hand side of the window. Um, you have the column itself, which is rectangular mostly. It's 
uh, actually, yeah, that's rectangular, not cylindrical. You have the little scrolly thing, whatever that's called on the top. And then if you go up, you have the, uh, uh, I don't know, accoutrement that's in the corner of that uh, inset window. You have mm -hmm. then another thing at the bottom. So that is not one piece. That little Correct. corner bit at the top window is going to be its own. Mm -hmm. The actual column itself will be its own. The thing that kind of is on the outside of the column that then goes down and wraps around, that's going to be its own thing. So you would be able to create columns, the rectangular shape of the column, as its own thing. Right. And then the component that gets put on top that in this is like the little scroll thing, mm -hmm. like you're going to have multiple varieties of that because that's going to sit on top. Mm -hmm. And then what you're going to have in the corners of the window, you're going to have multiple varieties of those as well so that you can actually piece these individual elements together to create a unique look. Right. And looking at the homes around here, that's what happened. You'll have very similar like porch columns on a lot of houses. But then if you look at what's actually on the top and bottom and the, the, uh, the, the highlights, the accents yeah, are all completely unique mm -hmm. and it gives that front porch a completely different look. Right. And again, that was back when people were doing everything by hand and they made all those individual ones by hand. Whereas now we can make more unique accessories, so to speak, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. easier than we could then. See, I was, I'm driving towards an analogy here of like people in an online game. This is, goes back to discussion we had several episodes ago about um, NFT add-ons. I'm ignoring the NFT part for now, but we went into depth about skins. And what you have in these environments, let's say you have 15 skins to pick from, plus another five that you can earn if you grind for 90 hours or something. What you're going to see is some variability. A lot of people won't care. They'll just go with the default skin. Some people will just be picking whatever to be different, and then there'll be clumps of popular skins to choose for various reasons. But it just goes with any kind of accessories. There's a limited amount of accessories to choose from, and you'll see this distribution in almost everything because the unique elements are limited. Okay. It's, it's when, you, when you have them hand-built, then they're not limited. They're pretty much up to the mind and craft of the craftsman. And okay. The person I, who's I hear you, Jeff, but you're, you're using this. This actually doesn't go against what I'm saying because the alternative is no accessories whatsoever. Mm -hmm. flat glass buildings industrial with, style with steel around the window there's nothing pretty much every building in downtown dallas looks like that with a few exceptions yeah so yes if in ornate styling there's going to be an, an upper end bound of the variability you know you might only have of those cut corner pieces you might only have say 50 styles and you might only have 50 styles of column you might only have 50 styles of of window framing and you might only have 50 styles of the little scroll thingies, but, but now we've got 50 to the order of four possibilities. That is still far more variability than glass and steel side of a building. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's a limit, but I don't think that limit is anywhere near one, <laughs> which is pretty much what you get. Okay. Maybe not one, maybe, you know, yeah, I was going to quibble with you, one. You get what you, you get what I'm okay, saying. I think we know what you're saying. Yeah. So that's what that's the, the, kind of where I'm getting at. And I don't understand because now it's so easy to do this and we're not. And another example of this is actually in church design. If you look mm, that's at a good analogy. the classic cathedrals in Europe, or you look at the classic mosques in the Middle East, and you look at the old ones, older than 100 years, those things literally took generations to build. People would spend their entire lives working on some features inside that. Mm -hmm. And like, the, obviously economics was different back then, but if you just imagine the effort that one person had to do to then create this, and even if you look at all the old European cathedrals, they're all, they all share a lot of very similar design features. They all have a very, a lot of very similar looks, but they're all extraordinarily unique and intricate in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And when you're in one, it looks different than all the others. To make something like that now, I cannot even begin to fathom what the financial cost would be to do something like that, which is, yes. again, yes, stands, about. stands out to me because you can do, you could create the same intricate features that those old cathedrals had now, and it wouldn't take 
hundreds of people multiple lifetimes to do. So I'm going to borrow a term from product development. Well, two terms. Minimum viable product and a minimum commercial product. And I think let's apply, let's apply it to building a storefront, right? In order to have a storefront, you must have a door, right? If you want to get very minimal, you need a door and everything else could be flat, meaningless concrete if you want. That wouldn't sell very well. That's like what data centers look like. So odds are you're going to have some windows, some signage on it. The more you add, I would say this. I'm not likely to go into a store who's literally just a flat, unlabeled concrete wall with a simple door in it. First of all, I won't even know the company's there. Even if I do, then I might miss it, right? It's just one featureless door among many. So I don't consider that that is the minimum viable storefront that would be required for you to be able to operate as a store, but it's not really commercial. So then we add a couple features that are, make it minimum commercial. You, like then some of the windows, the signage, the, the other cues, you know, maybe a trash can out front, something that you know, this is, a, this is a store, there's a presence here, and whatever else you need, right? That's the minimum commercially viable product, minimum commercially viable storefront. Anything past that is an extra expense that you don't technically need. It would be, a lot of times, there's quite a lot of value add to having those things and features, but it doesn't mean that they're absolutely necessary. So if you're very budget conscious on building this store, you may choose not to go any farther past that minimum commercial product. You need that in order for things to sell, but anything more than that would be optional. And when the cost of building things is so high, um, I think that's when you start seeing some of those reductions in ordinateness and choices not to do. Or, or uh, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a huge building fad. It's still around with us. It's a, an industrial design. Like, go into a Chipotle and look around, and it's a bunch of pipes and corrugated tin and, you know, steel fittings, effectively. And that's their decorations. That's how they've done it. The whole store looks like it inside, and it's really cheap to do because corrugated tin is cheap. Steel pipe is generally not expensive. I won't say cheap. Fittings are pretty cheap, and so out of these building materials you may already have lying around, you can make decorations, right? But I, I just think that any decoration is an additional expense, and it's up to the builder, owner, whoever's directing that the build should happen, to decide we need this level of ordinateness. And the, the companies are the people that decide we must have, you know, like, think of like someone in a novel or, or in real life, and they're building a theme park, we, we, nothing but the best kind of thing. That's ruinously expensive to do, but it's, um, they chose to do it and they're going to go ahead and de they decided that all the ordinateness and the extra expense is worth it because they'll be able to make more or that's just their vision. So I think you got, it's, this thought is wandering farther away than I want. I, I'm trying to decide. Okay, well, let me, go let ahead. me, let me then kind of tie this back and ask you, okay, with what you were just describing about the design of the storefront and the buildings and all that. How then do you rectify that with what we started at the beginning with companies doing all these dumb ideas and changing things in the user experience and completely upending what people are used to and what they're going to get with what you just said? That's the storefront or the store owner deciding to take a risk on a feature of the store or the storefront. That may or may not succeed, but it helps them to stand out. That's the succinct response to that. That, you know, putting in, in Teslas, it was very, after you got past the Roadster era and you're actually getting into the mass-produced cars they had, it was very unique that they had just the single panel in the middle of the dash, and that's it. You interacted with everything through this panel. And no other car manufacturer was doing that at the time. Now it's, I don't know if it's common now, but it's more common. And that thing, that stood out. And it was a very bold choice, and I guess the Tesla owners don't mind it. I mean, I, I don't know, but like you and I were both complaining bitterly about car interfaces earlier, and I, I really, I must have buttons to interact with. I must have something I can grasp and, and give me feedback, tactile feedback on when I'm moving things around. So it seems like, hmm. Because what you're saying sounds like you're arguing against yourself. Because Perhaps. with the with the car stuff, you're saying, oh, well, no, they're doing this stuff to try to stand out, to be unique, to separate themselves from the crowd. 
And then with the buildings, you're saying, well, they're not doing any of that standing out from the crowd and trying to separate themselves because it's expensive and they don't care about that. We, they just want to get the, the minimum out there. Well, well, if that's the case, then why would car manufacturers, since we were talking about that before, be doing all this intricate stuff to make themselves stand out, which is more expensive and isn't necessarily what the consumers want. So after they do something like Honda, they then in a subsequent generation have to undo the thing they just spent all the money on doing. Um, at a high level, I think it's, for whatever reason, producers of con consumer goods and products, there always has to be a new something. It feels like. But, you know, we have generations of cars. First of all, safety obligations are increasing and fuel fleet obligations are increasing. And so there's naturally some demanded engineering time to improve both as generations of cars uh, are evolved. I, I seem to be inordinately focused on cars for some reason, but it's, it's, a good, it's a good analogy, right? So the very first thing that popped to my head when you asked your question was, well, a storefront is way more expensive than a car. But maybe not really? when you compare... I would think so. Maybe not. Maybe I'm showing my ignorance on how much it costs to put together a storefront, right? But it just seems like... That was the immediate thought I had was the price difference is enough that, uh, you know, now that I think about it, you're probably right that it's cheaper to build a storefront with certain cheap design cues than it is to go buy a car. Hmm. I can't reconcile those things. I'll have to think through that, actually. It just, it, you're right. I'm, I'm seeing what you're saying and you're identifying here that it doesn't really make sense. But let me, some, let me wrap hands around um, the uniqueness aspect and the newness aspect. It, it just feels like so this is a thing that happens. Uh, August, September, October, somewhere in there, sometimes even later. You, you, various consumer goods are like, well, okay, the New Year models are coming in, so we're going to sell the cheap ones. Like, what's the difference between the 2022 shoe and the 2023 shoe for this particular New Balance model? I can't tell difference. It doesn't matter. But it's important for New Balance, and it seems to be important for the store that they clear out their inventory of the old model in favor of the new model for whatever reason. I don't understand why that's necessary. And there, it's not universal across consumer goods. Like, so here's a good example. Toyota did not change the Highlander, not the Highlander, um, SR5, whatever that is. They left that alone for like 12 years. I remember reading an article a couple years ago about a strange thing happened. In general, what you expect to see is, as the model year can, you know, you haven't changed the model and the years continue, you expect to see a decline in interest level. Well, instead, there was an increase. And so Toyota was getting more sales than the year before, and they said, well, we haven't changed anything. Let's just not see how long this will go. And they made it like 12 years before they redesigned the car. And so that's the one that bucks the trend there. But in general, it feels like there's always these evolutions that, that producers of consumer goods want something new, something notable, something to stand out. And I, I keep coming back to that as a conclusion of why maybe I don't need to reconcile these two disparate positions. Probably not accurate, but that's, that's where I keep coming back to. Does that make sense? Yes and no. Okay. Um, because, again, it, 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 it feels to me like you're, you're claiming one concept ideal for explaining one thing and saying, well, this, this is, you know, how do I want to phrase this? Um, you know, this is the reason that this happens. But then in this other case, everything I just said doesn't apply. Yes, actually, that's kind like, of how it feels and, to me too. And, and, and I, I get why you're saying it, because if you look individually at it, it they individually make sense. Mm -hmm. But yet I always, anytime I've run into one of those scenarios where a perfectly good explanation is the absolute opposite of a perfectly good explanation in a something else that's also very similar. I go, hold on a second. What what's really going on here? Like, mm -hmm. have I right? Is my perception around this wrong? Because in this case, we're talking about design of things that are going to be seen, uh, used, or you know, interacted with. And Makes yet, sense. we. We've ended up in this weird spot where it seems like there isn't a good explanation for what is going on in the mind of designers that are designing all this. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it, for me, at least, it comes down to 
personally, all the design choices that are being made or seem to be made, whether it's in UI design on a web UI, whether it's in car, you know, UX design for the interface, whether it's, you know, clothing stuff, whether it's building design, is that it's always the wrong, not necessarily the wrong one, but like the less than ideal one. Okay. Less than ideal. Um, I can agree with that, but I also believe that people have different impressions of what is ideal. And so there's certainly a room for variability within the space of product. It's not like you can just say, this is the one right way. That's when I was making the analogy to vanilla ice cream earlier, right? Ideals are different between people, their opinions, their, their points of view, or what they're looking for. Like one person buying a vehicle needs large amount of cargo space. So they look at cargo vans or trucks, or maybe they want something more fuel efficient. So they look for a crossover where it's got a big back space. The other one needs to carry six kids. Right. I and think I think that's very different than we're going to take away knobs to control air vents and you have to do it through the infotainment system. Okay, that's yeah. No. I, mean, I hear what you're saying, but I'm trying to reach out for this differentiator. I'm just trying to grasp it. I can't quite do so. So I'm gonna have to ponder that. And we may need to revisit this topic. So that's been an interesting exploration, and it didn't get. I, I guess I didn't allow it to go as ranty as we both thought it might go. So we have we have some rant left outstanding here, I believe. It's more meat on the bone, so I'm pretty sure we're going to revisit this. But I'm curious to, to hear what our listeners have to say about the designers, and are, are they making you want to do things to babies the way that it make, they make JT want to do them? What's your opinions on... How about this? Let's share some anecdotes of, of things that you've interacted with. You're like, this is a dumb design. Why do they think this was good? Because we really love to pillory those things and just make fun of them. So... Send us in examples of poorly designed things that we can all discuss, and we'll bring them back up in the next episode, or the next one that we, we're talking about the designers. Uh, multiple ways to contact us. You have the, the Matrix and the Telegram channels are probably the easiest way, and you can generally get a pretty immediate response there. We also have JT at MindDrip Media is a safe way to send email. There's a way to also contribute a message on the Fireside website, and we also have Twitter accounts that are semi-active. JT's is at Q5Sys, and mine is at yep, that's mud. So send us messages, reach out to us, let us know what your opinions are and, and what you think. Let's get a discussion going. Any closing thoughts, JT? Uh, no, I'm just curious to what everyone else's thoughts are. Me too. Send us in. We'll talk to you guys later. <laughs>